Hello and welcome to the Gig Economy Project podcast. My name is Ben Ray, I'm the coordinator of GEP and to mark International Women's Day 2023, we are going to discuss women's experience of online gig work. To talk about this, we have Al James, who is Professor of Economic Geography at Newcastle University. Al is an expert on the gendered aspects of the platform economy and you can find out more about his work at his website, Gender Digital Labour. Just go to geoworklives.com. Hope you enjoy this episode. You can get all of our podcasts at anchor.fm. And if you want to get the Gig Economy Project's weekly newsletter in your inbox, just leave your email at bravedewyork.com slash gig economy project. Al, thanks very much for joining the Gig Economy Project podcast. Thank you very much. Let's just start off by, um, if you can tell us a little bit about your kind of motivations. You know, why is it you're interested in this topic of of gender digital labour? What what makes you so keen on on researching this area? I think if you look a lot of that digital labour research, the research on platform labour, um, women are pretty much invisible within a lot of the kind of classic case studies of platform workers within platform theory more generally it tends to be that our understanding of how platforms function how workers experience them tends to come from experiences of men it tends to come from very visible public facing platforms so i mean you saw through covid you know the kinds of gig workers who are visible to the members of the public tended to be on-demand service food transport you know the kinds of platforms in which women are demographically more um, present tend to be your crowd work platforms, platforms working from home behind closed doors, domestic spaces, pretty much invisible to the public. You know, so you've got this invisibility of those workers both to the public, but also this strange invisibility within the scholarly literature more generally. You know, and you can you can give this you know benefit of the doubt to the academics and say, well, perhaps the sectors they're looking at tend to be male dominated. Mm-hmm. you know in terms of simply who are those workers but when you look at platforms that are female dominated and you're still seeing you know a lack of engagement with women in the research you're like, well, what's happening there is a kind of long-standing critique in feminist economics that says we've only ever understood how economies function through this assumed male lens mm-hmm. you know um there is this long-standing construction of economy as male women tend to drop out and it's now kind of happening again through a platform research is just the latest version of this um i mean and then from a kind of personal perspective the work i was doing previously was looking at people's abilities to juggle family and paid work in big corporates so that was looking at kind of it companies in in dublin and the uk so it's in ireland the uk um, dublin and cambridge what i saw towards the end of that project that was about 10 years worth of work was that women were increasingly quitting firms with or family-friendly working provision. They were either moving to companies with better provision or else quitting the sex completely and going self-employed. A lot of them were turning towards these platforms. So I was seeing this sort of about 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. So I've got to come into the project in two ways. One is a critique of the research agenda. Secondly, based on what I was doing before, you know. Um, yeah, so so let, let's get into... Um one of the papers that you've yeah. published recently, Women in the Gay Economy, 
feminizing digital labor. It was the top in the top five most read papers in the work in the gig in the global economy journal in 2022. So clearly there's a, there's an interest in, in, in this stuff. Um, it's based on original interviews with 49 women in the UK who use 24 different online digital labor platforms, things like freelancer.com, TaskRabbit, Upwork. Can you tell us, first of all, who these women are? You know, what sort of online gig work do they do? How much do they earn? What's their family situation? You know, who who is it that we're talking about here? So you're kind of predominantly talking about a kind of middle-class cohort of women. Most of them have male partners who are in work earning full-time outside the home. Some of them are paired off with other freelancers, but that tends to be, you know, less common. They, they're all UK-based. They tend to be graduates. Um, so these are platforms like Upwork, Freelancer, um, People Per Hour, um, Crowdwork platforms where they're providing kind of white-collar service-based tasks. What you see is a very strong overlap between the kinds of work these women were doing pre-kids and what they're now offering to the platforms. So these are women who are offering stuff. So you can hire them by the hour. You can hire them by the project. You know, um, many of them will list their hourly um, pay around the kind of 20 pounds mark, 25 pounds. Although interestingly, when I've done revisited interviews, many of them are now going in at a much higher rate. You know, you've seen progression. But they're typically going in at about 15, 20 pounds an hour, um, offering white collar task services such as um, Virtual assistant, um, back office support, um, many of them doing copywriting, um, web media management, um, web-based research, social media. It's a pretty diverse set of offerings, but what integrates, what unifies it all is it's kind of desk-based, um, usually from, from home, although some of them are working in jungle gyms and from their cars. And, you know, mm. from relatives' houses, but it's it's a set of tasks that are quite different from the stuff you're seeing on Amazon Turk. So Amazon yeah. Turk is kind of click work where it's kind of one cent per task and you build up thousands of these per day. Many of these women are, are, are booked in for several hours at a time or on a kind of concrete um, longer task that will take several hours. So some of them have written sort of um, blog entries on behalf of someone else. So they're like a ghostwriter. So once mm -hmm. that, that service is bought and finished, their name disappears from it. So the authorship reverts back to the, the buyer. Some mm -hmm. of them have written kind of um, Amazon product descriptions. Uh, many of them are work, working, you know, they're outsourced to big corporates. They're providing back office functions for big corporates. Some of their clients might be individuals. Um, so in terms of, that kind of task function, it's, it's women who've typically taken a pause from full-time employment to juggle paid work around childcare. Most of them have majority responsibility for childcare. Most of them have young kids who are preschool age. I do have a number of women who are single mothers who are grappling with challenges of that and their difficulties previously of trying to slot into a nine till five and a corporate expectation around you know, FaceTime and, and commuting to an office. This is all pre-COVID, remember, when mm. the, the kind of constraints on home working were quite strong. Mm. Um, 
most of them are earning, um, you know, between, you know, 500 pounds and in, in some cases, a couple of grand a month from this. In some cases, that's the entire household income. In other cases, it's contributing around half the income. Um, as I say, alongside a kind of male breadwinner wage. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of, of, of the, the vast majority are kind of white women from, you know, um, graduate backgrounds. There are a number of migrant women, predominantly in London, who cropped up in subsequent interviews when I, I revisited these workers post-COVID um, from Eastern Europe, um, mm-hmm. also from, from Africa, um, Southeast Asia using these platforms because they have a lower barrier to entry than the formal labor market Mm -hmm. it also in some cases allows them to build up a work history that some of them envisage when they move back home in a few years they can take that with them so you build Mm -hmm. up an online work history that is then continuous as you as you move Mm -hmm. so most of them sit as a kind of temporary you know a temporary phase rather than a longer term career ambition most of them using one main platform, but sometimes multi-apping across multiple platforms to keep their options open. Mm-hmm. So the, the kind of predominant construction of these this this work within a lot of that platform literature, certainly around food delivery and um, personal transport, is it's pretty low paid. It's poorly paid. Um, I'd say that's not inconsistent with many experiences the women I've spoken to, but there are a few who are earning a very decent living off the back of these platforms because essentially they built up the top freelancer cert they're several years in they've got a kind of very clear work history a set of reviews a set of feedbacks that's very positive and that's positioning them within the algorithm that they can then get subsequent work they're building up repeat clients in some cases they're taking those clients off platform which mm-hmm. then increases their income again because they remove the platform fee Mm. Um, it, it's something the platforms aren't happy with but it, it does happen um, so there is some for some of them there's change over time you do see some form of progression for others it's pretty exploitative um, they feel trapped um, particularly in the context of COVID um, many of them keen to go back to formal employment once their child goes back into formal schooling or starts formal schooling yeah I mean that was one of the interesting things reading the paper was the push and pull factors to enter an online gig work for for women because they are they, you do show in the paper they are quite gendered mm. gender based those factors you know so mm. for example limited ma- maternity pay mm. um, covering childcare costs flexibility around school hours all those sorts of things were like encouraging women to to enter in this market but also the problems that women face in the the offline you know, economy, like working in a in an office, and um, like the negative factors of the, of that work were, were pushing them as well. You want to just want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the dominant discourse around they they call it macro work. You know, slightly more complex tasks rooted through these platforms, different from the kind of micro work, click work of Amazon Turks. It's seen as it's seen as as more involved, um, more complex better rewarded and the, the discourse around it that you get from many platform managers policymakers is that this is enabling new forms of online entrepreneurship that this is a big positive step for women that in theory because they're competing on these platforms through this anonymous avatar behind a kind of image of their choosing 
they can be who they want to be, that those old structural inequalities that position women as somehow disadvantaged in formal labor markets because of kids, because of um, constructions of female skill as somehow less than male skill for equivalent, you know, qualified applicants. There's a whole series of constructions that, that we know about. We've got 50 years worth of, of you know, feminist labor market research that's telling us these inequalities are stubborn, they're not changing. Suddenly these platforms are heralded as sidestepping all of that. In theory, you can go online and you can advance and these platform managers and the, the CEOs are telling us that, you know, they're honored to be helping women making, um, you know, this, these new advances. What you quickly find in the research that's been done is that it's a nonsense. One, that the reasons women are going into these platforms are far from positive. It's actually quite a negative push on formal labor markets. Mm. But secondly, once they arrive, that actually those inequalities are being reproduced online digitally. So the participants I've spoken to, um, tend to have majority responsibility for childcare. They have quite a traditional um, division of labor um, around the childcare. Many of them had looked for family-friendly working provision from their previous employer. And what you find is a lot of these firms are not convinced of the business case to enable this stuff. Mm. So these are things like flexible working, working from home, employer assistance with childcare, you know, term time only working, job share. There's a whole range of these things. And provision tends to be quite limited. It tends to be around flex time because it's cheap to implement. But some of those more expensive you know, options are much more um, elusive. A lot of employers, once they hit um, you know, economic downturn, will pull a lot of that provision because they see it as expensive. They see it as an administrative headache. They see it as something that unfairly privileges a, a small minority of their workforce. So you'll see kind of provision on paper is not often matched by line manager support for provision. So many of these women who I've, I've engaged with turn to platforms because many of them were denied a flexible working request. They had hassle from their line manager because of juggling you know, paid work with childcare. They were seen as leaving too early, you know, leaving at five o'clock or leaving early to do a school run is seen as non-committed. Mm. Um, presentees and cultures where you're expected to be the last one there. And if you weren't, you know, you were frowned upon. Some of them were actually laid off some of them were laid off during pregnancy. Some of them were laid off after return from maternity leave. You know, mm -hmm. some of this is pretty offensive, what's happening. Um, mm -hmm. So they're turning to platforms as a, a means of, of low barriers to entry, a means of working from home, cutting out the commute, taking a hit to the income, but, you know, essentially keeping your CV work history um, live during you know, those years out from formal labor market. So many of them on returning to labor market say, well, I'm not, I'm not going to list the platform. I'll list the clients that came from it. So I was freelancing. These are the people I freelanced for. They won't identify the platform because in some cases they see it stigmatized. You know, it's mm -hmm. seen as somehow less professional. Um, so the motivations are rarely positive. So one of the things, yeah, that was really curious was this idea that flexibility, the flexibility that these platforms tout as one of the main sort of gains of online digital work, that that's actually reinforcing traditional gender roles, you know, because it's, yeah. provi it's providing a, a mechanism by which people who, you know, are in childcare or at the home can also just remain at the home and work at the home, you know, and combine the their caring responsibilities, which are overwhelmingly placed upon women, 
with the with, with walking. Um, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost that's like almost the opposite of what how platforms want to project this new model of work. You know, they want to project it as cosmopolitan, progressive. You know, we're, we're getting rid of the old uh, male-dominated nine-to-five routines. But actually, the the actual impact of of flexibility is is it reinforces those those traditional gender roles. Mm. I mean, that flexibility term, I mean, we talk about this with our undergraduate students, you know, lecture courses on loop, that it's it's a pretty ambiguous term, that flexibility at the level of the, the firm, what it means for workers is actually quite a negative thing. Mm. So, you know, firms need to be flexible. This is how you survive and thrive within this new economy. If you look at what that flexibility means at the level of workers, it's working longer, it's working harder, it's working less predictably, it's working... Um, often on a schedule that varies week on week, day by day. So the whole history of that work, family balance provision amongst employers, it was always this assumption that women will assume this majority responsibility for childcare. And the whole government perspective on this was, and, and employers was, was how you enable that. Now, a more progressive version of it would be, well, how do you reduce that load to start with? So what government is doing is, is deliberately saying, well, we're not going to legislate. You know, the UK, US version of this is very different to Scandinavia. In the UK, we don't legislate because that's interfering in firms' right to manage. So we sort of give firms the evidence that they're then self-willing to implement some of these provisions. Um, but the onus is very much on the individual worker. That if, if, if you have a problem with your work-life balance, that's on you as the individual. Somehow you failed. Mm. That's what you see within the kind of big firms. Um, it's up to you. That really is being shifted onto the platforms that because you failed in the formal labor market is, is the story, you know, and then you move to a platform in theory, we're offering you all these new provisions and it's still not working. Well, that must be on you then. So it's almost like that. It's taking something we know is problematic with the kind of long-standing provision of family-friendly working and it's inserting it into these new platforms. And in many ways, it's rather than offering a means out, it's simply reinforcing the same problem. You know, many of these women are critical of these platforms. They say these platforms aren't doing this as an altruistic intervention to help women with kids. They're doing it because it pays them to do so. Mm. Um, there's a whole untapped, you know, there's, there's academics studies on this. This is a kind of reserve army of labor, but temporarily out of the workforce. Platforms are making a fortune off the back of this. Um, you know, they take a pretty hefty fee. So when I list the job on these platforms, so I was actually listing my research interviews as a, as a task that people signed up to and paid for. When I do that as a, as a buyer, I'm charged a fee. The seller for these workers are then also charged a fee. So someone like, you know, one of Upwork people will take a 20% cut. They'll often also then take a um, withdrawal fee for the money that's paid. So you mm. pay into escrow and then they'll take a withdrawal fee. Sometimes there's a currency conversion fee. Some of them have fees to um, bid. There's a whole series of fees. So if, if a job's listed at, say, you know, £30 an hour, often those workers are only seeing £15, £16 of that because of the mm. fee withdrawal. So these platforms are doing very well at the back of this if you think about what's what's pushing many of these women to enter that that workforce, they're doing they're profiting off the back of you know 
piss poor childcare provision in the mainstream economy. You know, it's it's we kind of know that having kids makes it difficult to then do certain forms of paid work. You know, expectations around a nine till five, the commute. We know this, but we never seem to offer any decent means to resolve it. Mm. You know, costs of private childcare going through the roof. We only see those, you know, 33 hours kicking at age three. So well, what's happening for the first two years of that, that child's life? You know, mm. um, and then when we do have provision, it's it's often you say, well, what happens during the summer holidays? You know, that's six weeks you know, when kids do enter school. It's not as if those demands on childcare stop. Mm-hmm. You know, so you get these intermittent bursts of of um, work life conflict. So I think you're right. I think um, the platforms might rather than seem as this savior. So there's a there's a woman, Anne Marie Slaughter, who's a, a US based um, commentator who talks about platforms as a godsend for women mm. that they're enabling them to com- to to be the kind of parents they want to be while staying in the game. You know, whilst continuing with paid in, paid work. Um, I use that as a quote in the interviews. And, you know, I've engaged with probably over 100 women now over the last four or five years using these platforms. It's rare that you get support for that quote. I you think know, in, your saying, paper, in your paper it said just two women out of 49 <laughs> agreed with the godsend. And so it says they're godsend that are pain in the ass godsend, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not easy work. This idea of flexibility, I mean, we can pick that apart and keep going. I mean, flexibility at the level of these workers in their home is it's often working late nights once the kids are in bed. It's often working weekends. It's doing tag team childcare with your partner as they come home from work, you hand them the kids. Because often these these online gigs require a level of real-time interaction. Mm. So some of them are having to do live calls. Some of them expect meetings with clients. Um, some of those clients are quite demanding. This assumption of kind of a 24-7 um, service provision. The flexibility it's on offer is actually quite, well, it's inflexible, really. It's, it's flexible at the level of the buyer, but the level of the seller, you know, the, the pain that's involved for many of these people to provide that service within the time that's allocated, it's difficult. You know, many of these jobs are underspecified. So once, once they're listed online and you bid for them, you offer a proposal, often the successful um, bidder, once they've got that job allocated, the job itself changes, often it expands. Mm. Um, the number of instances I've had of people saying, you know, this job, I could work at it for seven days straight without sleeping, and I still wouldn't have finished it. You know, the time given for it is impossible. Mm. You know, so many of these um, buyers are deliberately downplaying the amount of work involved, which then becomes revealed once you've signed up to it. And that, that that fits in again to the gendered aspect of it, doesn't it? Because um, one of the, one of the selling points of these platforms is it you know eliminates gender bias, um, because you know un, unlike in the you know offline world where you know you're you're judged in a job interview, you know, and um, often it will be males who will be doing the job interviews, and they'll you know have their their gender bias. Or you'll be, you won't get a promotion because it'll be males who will be the managers and that sort of thing. That all, all of that's gone because it's some more, it's a less social relationship when you're doing it uh, on an online platform, you know. And you you can make whatever identity you want and and, and all that sort of thing. But it, what what you show is that, especially for women with childcare, 
the gendered dynamics uh, or the gender constraints on being successful in this online gig, gig world are quite substantial. And in many ways, it's just a digital a digital version of the gender biases people experience in the, the offline economy. Yeah, I mean, that's it. In a, I mean, that's the core tension. They're selling these things as more progressive that giving women more options. But when you look at the ways in which the bidding process works, your ability to actually bid. So many of these women will not bid on certain jobs. The ones that tend to pay better tend to have very high, tight turnarounds. Often it's over a weekend, which they simply can't do. Or it requires turnaround within a couple of days. So many of them will not bid on certain jobs because of the constraints of childcare. So essentially what you're finding is these platforms that pitch themselves as inclusive, gender inclusive, female inclusive, socially inclusive. It says nothing about the terms on which you're being included. So I mean, the main takeaway from that paper is that essentially if you're a woman with kids, your ability to compete on these platforms is constrained relative mm -hmm. to other workers who don't have you know, extensive childcare commitments mm -hmm. and other workers who don't have a female identity. Mm -hmm. You know, So in theory, you can go on there and be anonymous, but the platforms clamp down on this. They expect a headshot. Right. They expect consistency between your profile name and your email and your personal details. Right. Any, many workers will deliberately list their childcare commitments on their profile so that clients are aware of this before they are hired. Um, but you're seeing, and it's not limited to simply the kind of crowd work platforms I'm looking at. I mean, across the board, you're seeing women tend to get paid less on these platforms than male um, workers with similar work histories. Um, frequent incidences of wage theft where they're not paid at all. So that might be you're, you're hired to do a piece of work and they say, well, we need a free trial before we'll take you on. So they're offered, they're asked to do a translation or to do a piece of coding or a piece of you know web research. And then the client will say, sorry, it wasn't good enough. We're not hiring you, but they've got the piece of work. Many people I spoke to said, well, I've then seen that work used online. I was told it wasn't good enough. I wasn't paid for it. It's effectively wage theft. Other times you'll find that worker clients at the back end of a job will say the work wasn't up to scratch and they'll complain. Now, the thing that effectively enables you to survive and thrive for these platforms is that you need a very positive set of frequent client feedbacks. That's what makes you visible in the algorithm that roots out work subsequently. Mm. In order to get jobs coming to you down the line, you have to kind of build up a profile, an online profile. It's almost like you know, cultural capital within, within the platform. Mm. Many women will deliberately not invoice a client who's, who's unhappy because it means the mechanism through which they can leave negative feedback is, is gone. So they'll take that short-term pay hit. And in some instances, you know, we're talking three, four, 500 pounds. They're willing to kind of forego that short-term pay, that, that wage theft, because they don't want the longer-term hit to their profile. You know, mm -hmm. frequent instances of this. In some cases, women have chased um, clients who didn't pay through the courts. You know, um, I saw this through COVID a few times um, because that was a big amount of money. Mm -hmm. Other women are making the trade-off and saying, well, I'll just put it up. So in theory, it's, it's supposed to be gender progressive, but most women will argue that they've, been, they've never been um, subject to that kind of abuse from a female client. It's always a male client. And the assumption is that, you know, if you're a female um, platform worker, you're, you're somehow, you're not going to put up as much of a fight or we can bully. 
Mm. You know, so I've got instances of wage theft, but it also connects to other forms of abuse these women are receiving online, which are completely undocumented within, you know, the platform literature and some of that in the paper. Mm. But these are things like, you know, clients assuming this is some form of Tinder, you know, an extension of Tinder, you know, making comments about someone's profile image, you know, very attractive, you know, in some cases going further. Um, some women being hassled by guys who've basically got hold of the contact information for the job, going off platform and hassling people, you know, directly to their Facebook profile, through their other social media profiles, um, to the point where they've had to block them on multiple channels. In some cases, worry these guys are going to turn up at their house because they have those details. Um, the problem is that you have a very strong policing by the platforms of the workers. It, you don't see the same level of policing for buyers, for the clients. Mm. So you can you can essentially set up a profile, be pretty abusive. Um, if the platform was to shut that down, you can set up a new profile pretty much overnight. You know, it's very easy to do that. Mm. Platforms aren't really tracking. Well, you know, if we have these repeat offenders you know, forms of permanent exclusion just don't really exist. Yeah, it was interesting that, you know, you noted an example of a, a woman who was actually, she feared that um, someone who was harassing her via one of these platforms may come to her house, you know, because he had information on where on where she lived. And that, you know, in a sense, that may be surprising for people because they might think, well, we're talking here about an online workspace which, yeah. unlike a, a you know a physical offline workspace, doesn't have the same social tensions you would have thought. Um, but I think your report shows that the kind of isolation that people experience, meet, combined with the fact that you know people still manage to sexually harass people and stuff like that um, on these platforms, means that in some ways it can be more. You, or you can have the feeling that it's more more dangerous uh, in terms of health and safety issues, mm. as well as the lack of employment rights, you know, because there's no there's no um, HR person to go to if you have an issue or anything like that. So, yeah, I mean, you're self-employed. You are an independent contractor. Mm. But when you look at the ways in which these... Um, so you don't have a job contract. Mm-hmm. You an employment contract with the platform. Um you're subject to a user agreement, which in some cases is 24 pages long. When you go through these things, you know, very little of that is in support of the worker. Mm-hmm. So there isn't, you don't have a line manager, you don't have a HR manager, you have no pension, you have no sick pay, you have no maternity pay, you have no sick leave, you have no holiday pay. Um, many women are saying, well, I'm willing to accept all that so long as, you know, the, the, the opportunities for paid work coming to the platform offset that. You know, I accept that I'm, in, I'm self-employed, I'm independent, fine. But when the level of abuse means that the structures the platform does have in place to protect workers are exposed as failing, you know, they're saying, well, what am I paying all these fees for? Mm. So if you're abused by a client to one of these platforms, as many instances I've come across, platform help desk is basically outsourced. Platform help desk works basically as a series of tasks that are put through the same platform. So when you're you know, listing your instance of, you know, sexual harassment by a client, that's being dealt with by another freelancer who's picked up that job through the same platform. Mm. You know, so often there's a time delay, often their ability to act is minimal. Um, And often the platform say, well, you know, you know, just just block this guy, you know, um, just, 
you know, remove them as a client and, and continue. It's, it's as if this stuff isn't taken seriously. And mm. it's not uncommon. I mean, I only interviewed in that first instance, you know, 52 women. Subsequent interviews over the last few years, where well, I've increased that to 100. But I'm finding multiple instances of this, you know, in a very small cohort. It's, it's, it's not uncommon. Um, so what you're see, beginning to see emerge are patterns of mutual support amongst some of these freelancers, um, independent of the platform. Some of them are building online networks. Some of them are, you know, turning to other forms of support, um, both informal but slightly more formalized. Um, some of the labor unions are beginning to pick up on this. Um, the levels of provision to support these workers are pretty minimal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And some of the same, well, I'm, I don't really care. I'm only going to do this for two, three years. I'm not going to spend half that time trying to organize for better working conditions. I just take that as half of the course, earn the money and get off as quickly as I can, get back into formal employment. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's um, some of it's pretty offensive, pretty striking. In terms of how they were able to get personal contact details, I think she'd issued an invoice for the work. So I think she'd done certain amount of work to the platform and then had a subsequent follow-up referral where she'd issued an invoice independently of the platform. So there's a kind of hybrid um, part of income. But yeah, mm -hmm. he had the home details. He knew she had young children. But part of the problem is that you tend to bite your tongue early on. So you, you're always chasing the five-star feedback. So mm -hmm. if the guy's abusive in a corporate environment, you'd have the backup to instantly push back in a platform environment you don't you have to sort of bite your tongue the first few instances because you don't want to get the client offside as, as daft as that sounds so it's only then when it sort of builds that people are then intervening and at that point you know these clients are getting in some cases quite abusive there mm -hmm. is a work on kind of gender-based cyber violence that colleagues have pushed me towards so i'm trying to connect these um, instances on the platform back to it's not a huge amount of reading I've done yet, but there is a kind of bigger research agenda around this. Mm -hmm. Let's, um, for the last 10, 15 minutes, let's talk a little bit about other parts of the gig economy and, and what, what you know about women's experiences there. Um, and an obvious one, an important one, is platform care, you know, uh, yeah. cleaning work, domestic cleaning work, home care work. And, you know, like online gig work, it's been presented by platforms as, you know, a godsend for women. Mm. There's, there's rating systems mm. which make them potentially more transparent than, you know, the traditional, these tra traditional forms of domestic work, which have often been prone to abuse. Um, and obviously because it takes place in people's homes um, and, you know, you want to shine light on, on, on those sorts of areas of work. It's disproportionately, you know, migrant female workers who do this work. What, what can you tell us about this this type of of uh, gig work? So I've got colleagues in Edinburgh who, who are working on this. Um, I've, I've read some of the stuff that's coming out of India on this. Um, so the kind of UK based versions of this, you're seeing a slightly different set of issues emerge. I mean, the work I've done is, is effectively remote. You never actually meet the client in person. Whereas the care work takes on a new dimension because you're physically entering someone's house. 
Mm-hmm. So where it's emerged in my own research is, is women who used to do that kind of work. And then because of COVID have pulled back from it and moved into kind of crowd work, you know, the desk-based working from home. Because they said, you know, partly the those vulnerabilities that we've talked about become amplified going into someone's home. Um, but in the context I was looking, I said, you know, your, your risk of catching COVID, um, your exposure to health risk in those kinds of care platforms compared with remote desk-based work was much higher. The other issue you've got, which is why women tend to self-select out of those care platforms. So, you know, we've got these caring roles constructed as female that when you look at, you know, cleaning domestic support, um, the likes of care.com, TaskRabbit and others, it's, it's long been constructed as appropriately female work. Um, platforms are somehow looking to um, formalize in some instances. So the Indian, the Indian model is very much, we're taking something that's very informal and the platforms are formalizing this for the better. Mm-hmm. It's a slightly different discourse in the UK, but the times at which clients want you to come into their home, often when they're physically there to keep an eye on you, that tends to be after their own working day is finished. So that, Effectively, what you're doing is providing reproductive support at the expense of your own. So mm-hmm. if you're going to someone's house between sort of five and seven at night in order to help with their meals and their cleaning and their, you know, in some cases, child care um, support, often that's the expense of your own. So you're sort of taking, I mean, ironically, you're taking something that's been traditionally devalued in the formal economy you know, reproductive labor behind closed doors. It's not done for a wage. It's not contractualized. Um, it's appropriately female. You're then commercializing it. You're, you're listing it on the platform as a commodity. Um, it's really women who are providing these, these functions for wealthier clients. There's a kind of class inequality there straight off. But often, as you say, there's a migrant inequality. So there's work done by colleagues at Queen Mary in London where you're getting migrant workers who are providing that. You know, putting the children of very well-to-do middle-class couples in, in for example, in London. Um, some of that is organised to the platform. And then they're going home to put their own child to bed over the phone through Skype and uh, WhatsApp. Mm. Thousands of miles away back home. You know, so you parent at a distance your own child whilst supporting uh, clients locally. Mm. Um, so in the UK, there's a, there's a pattern of kind of, you know, female engagement with these platforms that, that shifts again once you have young ch- children in tow your ability to kind of do the work that's being offered for many workers is it's, it's constrained mm. the stuff i've read in the indian context is talking about informal cleaners um domestic help in the indian context where you were very informal it was cash in hand often you'd live in a, a kind of middle class household um extended period of time the platforms there so there's there's book my buy is one um there's diddy.com horses are these domestic platforms where they're saying we're offering these young women a better future work through these digital technologies so they're saying you know we're giving them bank accounts we're giving them access to a much wider range of clients um some of the research that's coming out of india suggesting it's it's not as progressive as some of these platforms are making out Mm-hmm. You know, that they're formalizing it in one way but actually in other ways it's it's simply 
shifting the pattern of exploitation mm-hmm. you know away from um the client that you lived in with towards a, a more anonymous platform mm. so, I, think, I think also in the european context certainly there's a privatization dynamic with home care you know where mm. these platforms offer low very low paid women in the public mm. sector mm. High, high rates to enter the market mm. Once they have these women as part of, you know, the platform, the rates eventually come down. It's like mm. it's exactly the same as they did with Uber drivers, you know. Mm. Um, and, I mean, and in the meantime, the public mm. service has been eroded because they yeah. can't attract the workers, you know. I mean, this is the platform funding model. So, I mean, I've, I've been to academic conferences the last couple of years where they've done interviews with, you know, senior Uber managers. Their whole model is it's a loss leader. You effectively drive the, the mainstream taxi companies out of business by undercutting. And once you're the only game in town, that you know, Uber will then stick its prices up. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've seen the same with the care, you know, you effectively compete on lower cost once the kind of mainstream form of it is 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 gone. You then again push your prices up. So it's interesting that you're you're seeing that same dynamic. Um mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, there's a, a really strong commentary on this. Ali Hoschild from the US, who talks about commercialization of intimate life. So it used to be that certain functions we could provide to our own families, we now longer, we can't do it anymore because we're working much longer and harder. But luckily the market takes away with one hand and gives back with the other. So you can buy this stuff in now. You know, you mm. can buy someone to, you know, put together your flat pack furniture. But the kind of diversity of services on offer is, is pretty frightening. You know, you can rent a brother. You can rent a dad. You know, you can pay someone to scatter your family's ashes. Mm. You can pay someone to go online and attend a union um, protest for you or a, you know, a, a civic meeting. There's a whole diversity of these services she documents. Mm. And she says it's, well, the provision of it says nothing about is there any demand for it. And then she engages with some of the people using these services. Mm. Um, and she gets quite upset when she presents this stuff in person. that effectively. You've got kids whose parents work so long that they're going online to kind of buy a temporary replacement. Um, yeah. I don't know where that... that <laughs> you kind of take a whole series of functions and, and route them through a platform. It's yeah. Quite, yeah, quite, quite scary to think about where I could end up. Um, yeah. let, let's end on the the um, sort of critique that you have of, you've already mentioned it, of kind of academic research on this topic. You say in the paper, quote, women gig workers remain empirically and analytically marginalised and the gender dimension of gig work heavily under-researched. Now, from my perspective as a journalist, it's probably also true that in the media, women gig workers and types of types of gig work where women predominate are, are also under-reported. And the voices of female gig workers are heard significantly less than than males. What what do you put this down to? Is this just you know typical sexism, or is there something particular to the gig economy which is driving this? And and how do you think you know this can be addressed? Whereby um, people like you and I who are working in this field from an academic or journalistic perspective can ensure that you know women's uh, you know, women's issues are addressed and that kind of feminist perspective is is included in the, in the debate. 
I mean, it, it's changing. It is changing. So three years ago when I started working on that paper, there wasn't a particularly large research body of work on, on women platform workers to, to deal with. I'm now working on the book length treatment of this. And there's a lot more, but it's still compared to that kind of mainstream. I, I mean, I, I've done bibliographic search. Essentially, it's less than 1% of the research literature on platform labor is engaging with women. Um, I don't think it's it's purely empirical. So recent estimates, 163 million workers worldwide are using platforms to gain paid work. These are coming from the ILO and Oxford Institute. These are these figures. They also suggest that 39% of those workers are women. So if you, if you, you know, apply those two figures together, which the ILO would caution you not to do because of the way they, they generated those numbers, but it's about 63 million women worldwide using these platforms for means of income. So the fact that you're seeing very little research on them can't be defended on the basis there aren't many women in the platform economy. It's, it can't be purely empirical. I think, to be honest, it's come from, in many ways, the kind of front-runner case studies that we use to produce that research. So classic was Uber. Mm -hmm. You know, Uber was done to death. As a research, I mean, we've learned some fascinating stuff about how platform algorithms function and the inequalities and you know, what does flexibility really look like. And I mean, it's amazing research. It's come from a platform that's typically, what, about 70, 80% male. Hmm. So women haven't predominated on those platforms. So then when we're talking about, well, what does platform labor look like more generally, we talk about the Uber for care, the Uber for marketing, the Uber for transcription, the Uber for... Um, accountancy or, or copywriting uber mm -hmm. becomes this paradigm this paradigm that we assume other platforms are following in the image of um, so i think that's some of it i think a lot of the the kind of academic community itself is not particularly within platform labor have not come from feminist labor studies they've predominantly come from computer science they've come from um, studies of, of kind of internet geographies and, and digital working that weren't explicitly coming from a, a feminist perspective or a, a family perspective. So when I look at those, those traditions of, of feminist study for the last you know, five, six decades, there's not many scholars who've kind of started engaging with platform work from the other direction. Mm. And I think it's because it doesn't kind of look like the kinds of forms of employment that they would traditionally engage with. So when you look at all that kind of work family research, it's about an employer providing something for an employee. Um, that employee-employer model does not work in the platform economy. It doesn't have a, an equivalent. So the kind of concepts we're using to understand um, work family provision in the mainstream literatures need a lot of work to make them be relevant or viable within that, that kind of platform world so mm. i think that's part of it some of its tradition i mean I, I i've been to platform labor conferences the last you know five six years and the demographic is slowly shifting but for a long time it was predominantly a kind of male research community talking to workers like themselves um mm. but i think some of the most vivid examples that are coming out now some of your kind of women gig riders you know deliveroo and others you know, just the practicalities of juggling female health with doing that kind of work. 
So many of them are changing their sanitary towels behind bins mm. outside blocks of flats because there's no employer provided, you know, provision of um, um, toilet facilities. They're weighing in bottles. Mm. Um, they're getting hassled at pickup because they're turning up in their kind of form fitting like recycle wear, mm -hmm. getting hassled at pickup by kitchen guys. And it's, it's, it has overlaps with the kind of harassment I'm seeing amongst my cohort, but they're, mm -hmm. they're receiving that behind closed doors through a screen. I think it's quite different, you know, from what we're talking about here in, in, in person. So I, I am seeing increasing numbers of PhD students engaging with these kind of working realities. So I think it is shifting. Mm -hmm. I'm also seeing um, workers themselves looking to organize around these issues. So there's a, a colleague at Edinburgh, Karen Gregory, who's working with a whole network she has where they're it's, it's, it's worker data-led apps, where the kinds of data that these, these platforms are producing tends to be invisible to the worker, you can't access it. So you're doing two things. You're providing a service on behalf of the platform and the clients. You're also generating a whole series of data through your movements and interactions with clients, and, you know, patterns, routes through the city that is also of great value to the platform in terms of how they refine their model. Workers are now trying to kind of capture some of that data back. Mm -hmm. um, there isn't an explicitly female-led version of that yet, and I'm not sure what how that would look different but you're beginning to see, you know, some of the unions organizing around this, some workers organizing around this. Um, my sense is it's changing, mm -hmm. you know. So you had the Taylor Modern Review of uh, working, uh, good working a few years ago, a good working practice. There's a big kind of government kind of review of this stuff. And gig work was in there, but a lot of the themes, it was, it was quite, it wasn't as strongly worded as perhaps it could have been, you know. Um, so a lot of these interventions have come because of failings at, at government level. You know, I've engaged with the UK Health and Safety Executive on this stuff, and they have a very particular interest around female health and safety in the platform economy. But when you present this to them, say, well, you know, what, what your means for intervening, they sort of step back and say, well, we can't, because our terms of engagement are around workplaces, employer-defined, employer-sanctioned workplaces, and these aren't employees. It's like, well, your, your terms of engagement are, are rooted on a kind of legal definition that excludes these workers. So a lot of our kind of traditional government routes in to affect change are somehow seen as um, off limits to platforms, mm -hmm. um, which I think is quite worrying. I mean, these platforms are deliberately making their, they deliberately sidestep any sense of identification as employer, which means then they don't, they're not subject to any forms of employment law. That would otherwise protect these workers around harassment, wage theft, sexual, you know, um, abuse. Um, they position they, we're a tech company, we're not a employer, you know. And then they'll make reference back to their own employees. So some like people per hour or at work will have a small group of formal employees who who maintain the website, who deal with marketing and comms on behalf of the actual platform. They're not talking about the hundreds of thousands of workers who use that platform as an independent freelancer. Mm. So they, some of these platforms do have interesting initiatives around supporting female workers. When you look at them, they're not for the freelancers. They're for the direct employees of whom there's a small handful. Mm. You know, mm. I, I find that quite contradictory. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thanks very much, Charles. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Ben.